It is scary to think we are all completely interconnected and interdependent and, and we simply don't ask the right questions. And I have conversations with people all day. Like, I just sit there and I listen to their security posture. And if I'm being honest, at the end of the day, everybody can get breached. Like, that should be our default state. What's always top of mind is not having an ego. I don't care if you tell me we need to buy banners at SFO or billboards down 101, or I need to stand on the corner at like 28th and Broadway with a placard and hand out free flyers. Like, I don't care. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I'm joined by Liz Zalman, founder and CEO of StrongDM, a security and operations tool for managing access to infrastructure like servers, databases, and clusters. We start by hearing a bit about Liz's background in tech and how she found her way into enterprise software. Then we learned about her role at NAMI, where she had a front row seat to a large security breach that bore the formative experiences for the founding of StrongDM. We cover several topics, including enterprise software go-to-market, remote teams, customer-driven product discovery, and product prioritization frameworks. Liz goes into pretty solid detail on SOC 2 certifications that anyone considering these certifications should definitely listen to. All right, so uh, to get things kicked off, it'd be great to hear just a little bit about your personal backstory and sort of like, you know, where StrongDM came from. Sure. Do you know what ICQ is? The precursor to instant messaging? I remember it. So ICQ is an Israeli company, and there were a couple of founders, I think three or four. And one of the founders of ICQ is this guy named Yair Goldfinger. Um, That's an amazing name. It's an amazing, amazing name, yes. So ICQ got acquired by AOL for, I don't know, like $400 million or something in the late 90s. And after ICQ, Yair went out and started a company called Datomi. Mm. And in typical Israeli format, Datomi stood for direct one-to-one messaging over the internet. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and Yair um, essentially invented what today is called retargeting or remarketing, okay. which is those banner ads that follow you around with the picture of the thing you last looked at like on the Gaps website. Mm-hmm. And he started this company, and I was like employee number seven maybe, and I joined them in Boston as their first account manager, and then moved with them to Chicago, and I stayed with them for four years, and they grew up to be this like big behemoth. They actually ended up getting acquired by an ad network and then took over the ad network and then got acquired by Alliance Data Systems, which owns Epsilon for over $2 billion. But I left them well before that, four years in. And I was working with this guy named Eric, and we saw the start of smartphones. It was like HTML5 was, was just beginning. The iPhone, I think, had just come out. And so this is like 2009, maybe, 2008, 2009. And Eric turns to me and he's like, hey, I have this idea. Why don't we do something with smartphones and mobile? Datomi's not doing anything in mobile. It's all web. And I said, okay. And so in typical entrepreneur fashion, we're like, well, we think we can do better. And so we quit. 
I mean, mobile is a pretty good trend to like quit off of, right? Like, it's a good one to like be like, we should, we think there's something here. This mobile thing could be big. It could be big. Yeah, that was, that's that right. was a yeah. Idea. yeah. And he was working for a mobile ad network at the time, so he was mm-hmm. like, and he was all he did was ad ops all day, and he said there's actually a problem in mobile, and that agencies are spending a ton of money, mm-hmm. and they have no visibility as to whether ads are rendering on the phones. Like that's how early it was. Like verification services didn't exist in ad tech on mobile specifically. Like double click existed, right? Did not appear on a browser, but sure. but not in mobile. And so we did that. I moved from Chicago to Boston. I slept on my co-founder's floor for like a month on the air mattress, actually. Nice. And we started a company called Media Armor, which started as mobile ad verification, and four years later ended up essentially becoming a 360-degree consumer profile. So by the end of it, we knew who you were on any device that you owned. And we could track you to an in-store purchase and then update your messaging based upon your behavior. So I would integrate with brands on their websites, on their mobile sites, on conversion pages within email blasts. Mm. And so I would create essentially a graph, your device graph, and then could track you to an in-store purchase. And in-store purchases, like how many times you give your email at the register now? Often. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, not that much for me personally, but... But maybe your wife? Mainly because I just, yeah, I just yeah. Don't, don't, don't like shop anywhere but Amazon, so... They have an email address every time I buy something. Right, there you yeah, go. It's just Amazon. <laughs> Amazon was not a customer, unfortunately. <laughs> and so we raised, I think we raised like 1.75. Graycroft and Inovia were our leads. And at that time, this, a Series A was $1.5 million, not like $10 million. Sure. So we raised an A. And we realized that the best exit at that point was going to be an acquisition, that mm. we, needed, uh, we needed help to grow bigger. So we got acquired by another Graycroft uh, and actually a sellback company called Nomi. And Nomi was Google Analytics for the physical world. So they would install Wi-Fi sensors and Bluetooth beacons in physical retail locations. And then based upon your proximity of the phone to the sensor, they would track your literal physical path to purchase. And so if you took this in-store footpath Mm -hmm. and you combined it with the Media Armor, like, 360-degree digital profile, you had what I may or may not have affectionately called the Death Star of oh, marketing. Nice. <laughs> nice. I see you acknowledged. Totally the, acknowledged. Yeah. The dark side. Do you know what a fathead is? Uh, the sticker you put on your wall. Yeah, the giant wall size sticker. I yeah. may or may not have purchased a Death Star fathead. Oh, that's amazing. And so Nomi, Nomi acquired us, and we were working together for about a year, and... They ended up getting acquired by another company called Brickstream. And Brickstream, I think, did hardware manufacturing for for sensors, and they wanted to move into the modern age. So in the middle of all of this, Nomi had a breach, Mm. had a a data breach. So they had... um, Pesky security stuff. Pesky security stuff. Mm -hmm. They used Mongo to essentially store just the hundreds and hundreds of millions of hits that were coming in from these sensors and all of these retail locations. They had every major retailer in the U.S. that you've ever heard of and other guys like restaurants and and such. So Mongo is not the most secure when you set it up. And Mongo ended up leaking on a port 27017 and a hacker got in and found all of the MAC addresses of every phone that Nomi had ever seen in any one of their locations, totally not encrypted at rest, and the FTC found out. Okay, so the challenge was that Nomi had a handful of different security issues. The first being that they exposed the database on the internet publicly, like just over a port. Unauthenticated access to that database over that port, right? 
There were a couple of things. So the Nomi privacy policy stated that data was encrypted at rest, and it oh, wasn't. Okay. Yes. So, so, so there was a disconnect then, between business and IT. Oh, so that you're saying they attested to one a bit of their data policy that just turned out it wasn't true. There was a disconnect between teams. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. And then Mongo, I think there were controls put in place, but nobody QA'd those controls, right? Like if you're going to spin up a database today and you're going to put us, you're going to put it behind a, a firewall, right? And so you need to get access through that firewall or onto the VPN in order to gain access to the database. You're going to test that that's the case, right? You're going to try to. Yeah, we see. would probably even spin it up through some automation, right? We probably wouldn't be. Uh, we we always called that process of doing manually artisanally handcrafted servers. We're never a big fan of so bespoke servers. Yeah, bespoke yeah. servers. So we we did it. We, everything for us is automation. But yep. I understand years ago that was not the case. So that was not, yeah. So what year was that? That's like 2014. I mean, yeah, they could have been using it, automation, but they didn't. It's but fine. they didn't. Yeah, right. People didn't QA that the steps that should have been taken to get that Mongo lockdown. Um, and that was were put in that place. was like. All the data, tons of data. That was all the data. Yeah, this is a huge monument. It's like tons of information. So interestingly for Nomi, it's their direct customers and customers who are consumers who a bunch of data is now leaked out about, right? The so MAC addresses. It's MAC addresses, which, which is considered PII in most countries. Yeah. Um, certainly in the EU and America, I think Canada not. But that being said... Who knows what I can do with a MAC address, right? Sure. You you might need other information in order to triangulate who I am. I think the black eye ended up being on the retailers where, like, if you look down this list and you can Google it and you'll find it, I mean, it was 7-Eleven, Abercrombie, aerosols, like, you name it, like, it was just a massive black eye for these guys. Yeah, so I, I often talk about this from one perspective, which is that as a an enterprise, really as any organization security posture of your least secure vendor really becomes your security posture, right? So you can do all you what you want, but as soon as your vendors have access to this data and they are not truly secure, that's your security posture. So it's like the weakest link, right? Yes. Any vendor that you are relying on for anything critical to your business is now correct. That's yours. Right. And so there are things that, I mean, there are certainly things you can do like I can think about the things that we as a provider of security are are held to, right? Things like SOC 2, things like pen testing, things like ongoing vulnerability scanning, things like contractual notifications of any breach within a probably less than 24-hour period, so on and so forth. But I mean, the number of companies that actually ask that of their vendors is, it's very, very small. And I have conversations with people all day. Like, I just sit there and I listen to their security posture. And there's no judgment, right? There's no sure. good or bad. Because if I'm being honest, at the end of the day, everybody can get breached. Like, sure. that should be our default state. And you sort of have to ask yourself, like, it is scary to think we are all completely interconnected and interdependent. And, and we simply don't ask the right questions. Yeah, so we'll, let's dive into a little bit of that in a bit. I, I want to kind of keep going into the story around StrongDM. And so you were at Nomi. Like they acquired your company, you're all excited about working there, then they get breached. And like, were you there during the breach? Yes, I was. I so it was like so Nomi itself got acquired by this Brickstream right. company. And so I got out with a double trigger. Okay. And so that was all happening at about the same time. And that happened and the FTC got wind of it. Um, because the hacker went public. And Nomi ended up becoming subject to I think not one, but two FTC consent decrees, and then the whole entity just went out of business. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. That was exactly what happened. And so, 
you're nevertheless like fairly close to this breach. Like you were you you knew what was happening. You were paying attention. You knew the team. You were staying connected. You were still there. Maybe maybe you're on your way out, but you had a pretty front row seat for what what happened here. I had a pretty front row seat. Yeah. Now, thank God, Media Armor was collecting the CRM data from companies, and so that data was stored in a completely separate system and had never been integrated with Nomi. Um, one, one of the advantages of a of a, an acquisition a, a, that never, <laughs> n- without a great integration, right? Yeah, we're going to integrate this all in. Well, we didn't integrate all the processes, but turns out that saved our ass. Yeah. So, yep. That's funny. And so all this was going down. I think it was actually the summer of 2014. It's all happening at the same time. And so I have two co-founders. One is my CTO, Justin, who I went to high school with. So I've known him for a million years. He taught me how to drive a stick, actually. Mm-hmm. And then Skylar, my co-founder and CMO, he was the VP of marketing at Nomi. Okay. And that's how we met. And so we are in the trenches together while this is happening later that summer. And we are we are just like fighting for our lives, like with customers together, like hand-in-hand combat. Um, and when it was all over, I was like, wow, this guy's great. Like mm-hmm. I trust him explicitly. And so the three of us started talking and batting around ideas of what we might want to do for a business. And and that's how everything coalesced. And tell us what StrongDM does now. StrongDM manages and audits access to servers and to databases. Um, okay. So dive into a bit more about like how you do that and why it's different. Companies today have, what, three, four, five different types of database management systems. They're running one, probably two different types of operating systems on their servers, probably a bunch of Linux and some Windows. And if you are managing access to those systems for technical teams, and by technical team, you could be somebody in the BI team or you could be an actual engineer, you're doing it by hand. Maybe there's a little bit of automation using um, Chef, say, Mm -hmm. but you're creating users in the database and you're managing them manually. And when it comes to seeing who's doing what, maybe you've got agents installed on the databases. It's certainly not... You don't have complete logs. They're not all in the same place. You certainly can't see what people are doing like in RDP sessions um, or SSH. And so we we simplify that into a single control plane. It's a proxy. And then you can see who's doing what when you put everything through it. So cool. simplified access and full um, full visibility. Cool. And then who would your customers be today? Like not necessarily if you don't want to name specific customers, but just generally what types of businesses? The product does a pretty good job of ranging all the way from like super small teams all the way up to Fortune 100. So like cool, sexy brands that we have that your your avid listening base might know of. Uh, Peloton, Yext, Hearst. Actually, Hearst started as a customer, and they liked it so much they asked to invest. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it goes up and down market. Okay. And so would you say this is like a solution to the problem that you experienced at Nomi? Or it's kind of, it feels, it's not a direct solution, but it feels related, right? It's related in the sense that, right, if we speak in Amazon parlance for a second, right, um, if you're spinning up infrastructure today, that stuff is going to be firewalled. And if something is particularly sensitive, you're going to put it away into a a subnet, into a DMZ that probably not many people are going to have access to. And so... Like, let's say Strong existed four years ago and Nomi were a customer of Strong. I think what I probably would have recommended is that nobody would have been able to gain access to that Mongo instance unless it was coming from an IP of one of our relays. Mm-hmm. And in that way, the only way you could have gotten access to the relay is by having our software installed on your workstation. Yeah, right. So you're, you're telling me you would you would have had them not expose it on the public internet? <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. Okay, that's... <laughs> I like I like that. 
That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. You said it, not me. Uh, okay, and so how long you guys been around for? Was it like 2014 you then started this? Or what was the— Oh, that's a good question. I think we closed our first round in 20, early 2015. Okay. So we've been around since early 2015. We've raised $5 million. Uh, True is our lead. Bloomberg Beta's in us. Data Collective's in us. Um, the chairman and former CEO of Splunk, Godfrey Sullivan, is in us. And so when you think about how you're going to market today, it just generally helps. Like, Would you think about yourselves as like a bottom-up or more of like a top-down? We are definitely a top-down. Okay. And it's an excellent question because— I get asked all the time, like, oh, you know, why don't you go to meetups and talks to developers? Like, if I think about how Duo, like, if you talk to anybody about Duo, this is this product that that everybody loves. Like, when Duo first came out, people were like, man, this is the absolute right way to do things. And there was this, like, evangelist swell of the doers who who wanted this multi-factor solution. And I wish that were the case with a, with a control plane, right? But if I'm going to go and buy an access plane to manage all of the access that I have at a at a company, it's got to come from the top down. Mm-hmm. Because why buy a control plane if you're not going to put in it? It's all or nothing. Sure. Yep. Okay. And so then you find yourselves, like your key advocate is going to be a CTO, VP of engineering, something like that. Yeah, head of infrastructure, Great. IT, infosec, something like that. And so they find out about you because you're just like, get connected, call in, like, shoot them an email? Like, what's the normal way that you, like, that customers are finding you? All sorts of things. Uh, from a marketing perspective, we we put out a lot of content, less so salesy stuff and more, like, educational. You can't sell to infrastructure guys. They have a very clear opinion. They know what they want or don't sure. want. Customers love us, so it's a, it's a lot of word of mouth. Yeah, I think the typical typical software playbook at this point. Great. Yeah. And your team, like, how big, how many people right now? So we are distributed. I think we're just under 20 Great. right now. Yep. We're all over the globe, which is kind of awesome. Um, we get, we're on video all the time. Um, oh, funny. Yeah. It's fun. People are like, how do you do it? I'm just like, we love video. Yeah. We love video and we love Slack. What, what's the furthest time zone from you? Is there anyone that's like 10 or 12 hours? There is. We have Amsterdam, actually. Okay. But he works Pacific hours. So when he goes to bed, it's like, what time is that in Amsterdam? I, I don't know. Yeah. Nice. yeah. This should only be like, what, six hours, seven hours from New York? Right? right, so it's nine from San Francisco. Yeah, but it's better for you. It's not too bad, right? Oh, I'm great with it. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I just don't know yeah. how he. Yeah, I could. That's, it, yeah. that's how he's worked forever and ever and ever. <laughs> that's that's actually the funny thing about being distributed. I, I when I was at Live Person and I was based in in Los Angeles, we had a big office in Tel Aviv, and the ten hour time difference was actually the thing I found to be the hardest because it's just like. You know, I would be taking trying to take meetings at seven a.m. and it's there five p.m. And with Tel Aviv, there's also like you only overlap with four days because mm-hmm. they don't because they, they start don't work on, on yeah, yep. they start working on Sunday, and so both parties felt inconvenienced by these meetings, and so it was hard to get that like even over video, you're there, you're seeing each other, but like I'm not super stoked to be on a call at seven a.m. You know, every day, and they are not super stoked to be staying past five when they want to like go see their kids, so. That's the biggest challenge I have with time zones. So it sounds like your employee that's in Amsterdam has figured out it's better just to to stay on the same time zone as the rest of the team as much as possible. Or maybe he's just a night owl. Yeah, yeah. maybe. <laughs> no, but it's true. I had a demo today with somebody in Israel, and it was 2 p.m. Eastern, and you get on the phone, and he's like, yeah, it's 9 p.m. You can hear his kids screaming in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the biggest challenge, I, you know, because you want to be able to like live a normal life and like have family and things outside, so... 
I don't think you can say that, man. You're an entrepreneur. You can't have a normal life. Yeah, I have a somewhat normal <laughs> life. I try to. I try to, well, at least try to make sure that everyone on my team has a fairly normal Better. life. That's important. That's really important. <laughs> okay, so then Strong DM, you guys are helping secure infrastructure and you're doing a top down sale. So then who were your first customers? How did they help you discover the problem and the solution? Like, what was that product discovery part look like for you? It's a great question. So I. I'm going to give the banal answer of we listen to our customers, except I'm going to caveat it and say that most people who say they listen to our customers are total, full, they're just totally full of shit. And or maybe that's not true. I, I mean, I... Do you listen to your customers, Grant? We try. <laughs> uh, we try. So we actually, we, we had an idea of what we wanted to do, right? We So we knew that this thing with Mongo shouldn't have happened. And so we were like, we're going to do something with access. It's, there's got to be something with auditing. And Justin sat down and just started to code. He's like, I have an idea. I, I think I want to do something with a, a proxy on a workstation and an intermediary, and we're going to see where it goes. He knew he wanted to write in Go. He wanted something pretty low level. And so he's off coding, and Skylar and I had no idea what customers wanted. Like, this is pretty new, right? Sure. Because if you were managing stuff to date, you were doing it by hand. Things like Active Directory don't extend to you know, servers, let's say, or even to modern databases, right? When was the last time you could integrate Active Directory with, like, Redshift? It just doesn't happen. <laughs> when was the last time those two words were used in the same yeah. sentence? Yeah. <laughs> and so Skylar and I went out and literally called everybody in our network, and we did these product development interviews, and both of us were on every single call. So there was one person who was administering the call, and one person taking notes and IMing the other when they were like introducing bias into their line of questioning. Mm. And we would start with some provocative questions about, about data and access, and then we would just let the person talk. Um, and some of these were 15 minutes, some of these were an hour long, and it was everybody, CEO, marketing people. We went to ad tech, we went to banks, we went everywhere. And after like maybe 150 of these, we sort of stopped and we took down every single thing that people were complaining about as frustrating in their job as it relates to this subject area. And we sort of aggregated it into different features or things that we may or may not need to build in order to sell it. Sure. Um, and then Justin finished an MVP, and Skylar and I started selling it. And it was kind of like hotcakes. We started off with, I think Postgres was our first protocol that mm -hmm. we deconstructed. SQL Server was the next one. And it was very simple at the time, right? It was just, can we manage access? Can we log queries? And then we started adding database protocols and going down the line of listening to our customers, then people started asking for SSH. And so we we're like, huh, let's see. And so we deconstructed that. And then people started asking for RDP. And so RDP came next. And by the way, surprise, surprise, even modern day startups like, like the Peloton example, mm -hmm. I mean, these guys still have like Windows servers are sitting around. Like everybody's got an AD server sitting in a closet somewhere. Sure. And so that's how it expanded. It's just people asking and then us delivering. We actually, um, I can't think of a single feature that we've built unless somebody has paid us for it. So this is a, a bit of a uh, partially out of my personal experience, but you're building some features that customers are asking for, maybe paying for. Are you doing a full like go to market with every one of those features and like, rolling it out to the rest of your customers and like making sure that it's not just you know the company that asked for it but then like everybody else knows about it and it's like kind of launched and there are two phases yeah. uh, so there's a there's what I'll quote a design discovery phase yeah. where we sit down and we get sort of like what our customers are asking for we're going to go and build like 
V1 of that. It's not going to be the most user-friendly design. It's going to be like a little kludgy, and we're going to get it into four or five people's hands. We're going to watch how they use it, and then we're going to go and revisit it and refine it to make it like generally available. So I, I say that because like we build a lot of stuff at Replicate. I'm sure you do too. And it's like, especially when your team is very engineering oriented, it takes a lot of effort to make sure that like you're writing all the docs and all the examples, and you're writing the blog posts to announce it, and you're integrating into like your dashboards, people can discover it. And like, I think that one of the points I try to help everyone see is that like, one, writing the code is not, you're not nearly done, right? Like that's just like step, that's like 5% of it, right? Then you got to like get it all the way automated and then in production. And then it's like, we got to get people to use it. And then you have to like enable the rest of the team to talk about it and scale it. And like, and so there's so much more that has to happen other than just like writing one of these like features, right? And so, I, I mean, it's it's a lot of work as a startup. So let me ask you a question. In your case, does this new feature make you more money? Or does it make you stickier? Yeah, so, oh, I, so I love this. So <laughs> uh, and I'm interested in your perspective too. Because like, we always have this framework we talk about when we look at potential things to build. And we think about it in terms of acquisition, conversion, retention. And so we'll score lists of features that we think we might want to have on those different metrics, right? Like what are measures, right? Okay, how do we think this will help us acquire new users, convert folks that are trying it out, or retain existing? And so it depends, right? Like for us, like we don't have a retention problem much anymore. And like probably because we built too many retention-oriented features in the beginning. <laughs> so like, Congratulations. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> So now it's like, okay, well, where's the pain? It's like now we're focusing more and more on conversion, right? So we think about try to make as many features as we can that'll just help people convert faster. That's been a big focus for us. But like that's, so depends yep. what that feature is. Yep. How, how do you think it? I think similarly. So for example, if you're running Natiza and I don't support Natiza, I ain't going to even get you into a trial. Mm-hmm. So like that's a very clear line. Sure. Now there are things that you can build support for after a conversion. So let's say somebody wants to bind strong to uh, to Okta. Of course, we support Okta, but mm-hmm. let's say we didn't. That might be something I could build as a condition of the conversion. Sure. Right? Wait, what were the other two? You said acquisition and then retention and... Conversion. Yeah, conversion. Yeah. Okay. So for us, the bulk of features fits into the retention and sort of stickiness category. Mm-hmm. How can I make sure that strong is more and more and more useful to you? So... So adding SSH means that I now not only proxy access to databases, but I've got your whole engineering team from a a server perspective and DevOps people, right? If I have an integration, if you can take our logs and you can pipe them directly to S3 or send them directly to Splunk without writing a single line of code, that's just made me stickier because you now rely on my logs within, within your sim. Sure. And then honestly, we, you know what? We actually have a, a third category, I'd say, things that, that demo really sexily. Oh, I love that. So like time boxed access yeah. is an amazing demo feature. So I can like grant myself access to me and then I can fire myself on a demo and people are like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually so funny. Like when I, I built my first company, we had this feature. So it was basically live customer support screen sharing but like the end like the consumer was on a mobile phone and so I could like you could be in the hotel tonight app and I could request to view your screen and then as the support agent I could see your screen click into it and like show you what to do like super cool right like super cool you know and this is like 2012 and coolest demo you could ever see no one's seen something like it 
and then no one ever used it in production, right? It's like it just, it worked. It was there in production. It just like turns out like what people wanted, like when they were trying to book a hotel room, was like to ask a question about like the room. They didn't like need to like be shown what to click next, right? Demo, super sexy demo value, but like not much product value. Not much product value, but that's interesting, right? Because you would get on, the, you would show it to them, or you you even get on demos now. I bet you, and people go through their series of questions mm-hmm. that they're going to ask you, and I bet you, you haven't heard a new question in two years, sure, right? You yeah. you know your sale cold, and so there's also something to be said for simply having the answers, right? Or if somebody calls me and says, "Hey, do you support?" Of course we do. Yeah. Right. Here's the doc sure. for that. Yeah. But there's, I, I, but I actually love the idea of like, because sometimes it helps to build some things that have a super sexy demo value because it's what makes people talk about it. And the same is actually true for for fundraising, right? Like you sort of need to find a thing that will boil down your product into like a reason for someone to like be able to say it at like at the water cooler, right? Or like, you know, hey, they're grabbing lunch. Like, oh, did you see that product? It does this like one cool thing, right? Whatever it might be. And so... I, I love that as a category. Yeah, well, props to Skyler, man. He asked for it for months. He's like, guys, this would be so sexy. Please, can we build it? Please, can we build it? And then finally, Justin and I were like, okay. And he was he was very right. Skyler, if you're listening, you were very right. It's so important, too, because it's like from a purely like technical perspective, I'm sure you're like, this is no, this is not that useful, right? Like, there's you know, There's a bunch of different reasons why it's not something you're going to use all the time. But from like the demo perspective, if you're like, oh, that is really neat. And it kind of like ties together a few things that you're doing behind the scenes. They're like, oh, that is really cool. Right. It gets you like your brain starts moving. You're just like, oh, my God, how could I implement that? Um, although I'll tell you, we finally had somebody decide to use it in the most amazing way. It's a company that has data centers. And so they, for managed services, they need to go and access customers' infrastructure. And they need to do it in a way that's audited and automatable. Mm-hmm. So Simon Strong. There's no lease privilege at this customer. There's zero privilege. A hundred percent of access is temporarily granted through, oh, through a workflow and automated. And we were like, yes, exactly. That, yeah, that yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. So this is this interesting thing where you've built this company and it kind of came out of this, like, you know, Nomi's trouble with security and you discovering this problem. And the other thing we were talking about kind of before this, which I, I want to touch on a little bit, is sort of the MarTech, AdTech, mm-hmm. like these other industries that are not like infrastructure software, they're not data tools, they're not like security tools. The security posture that they have, right, and the way that they think seems to be, they don't seem to really get it always, Right. And that's a challenge. Like, I've experienced it. I know you've experienced it, right? Like, I was the problem at some point at my last company. I was the guy who was like, why are we using, like, these VPNs? These are terrible. Like, I didn't, I didn't really get it. It feels like there's, there's something in that industry that, like, people just don't really get the problem around data security and around process that needs to be done in a way that isn't going to result in this in this issue. I think it's all companies, but I, I certainly do agree with you in ad tech having come from it. I uh, I will admit we have not a single ad tech customer. Mm. We have data customers, but we have no ad tech customers. You want to hear a story? Yeah. Okay. 
and this actually happened through our product development interviews. I, I discovered this a few years ago. So there is a very large marketing services provider. It's a holding company, and they own a subsidiary in in every part of the MarTech stack, like social display, search affiliate. They own a data co-op, video, whatever. You yeah. name it, they own, e-com. They even have yeah. an e-com site. And we were talking to a CTO, and he said, I am certain that there is sharing of passwords going on between my subsidiaries. And he gave me an example of how, I think at one of the subsidiaries, one day an engineer noticed a spike in I.O. on one of the databases and logged in. And they, they actually had a good enough audit trail. And they found that somebody had downloaded the entire CRM file of somebody in, I think, like the IR Top 100 internet retailer top 100, but they couldn't attribute it to a particular person because credentials were generalized at one subsidiary and they were being shared. And I actually believe it was between the display and affiliate people. Mm. And so I'm just going to invent retailer names here. Like if you've got like the Walmart rep on one side and like the, the Kmart rep on the other side, like they're sitting there and they're like, how can I trade this information in order to get more money out of my particular business? Mm. That was what was going on. Yeah, interesting. Like, hey, we know someone did it. Yeah. We just don't know who. Who. <laughs> and every data breach that you see in the news today, it's like facts on the ground. It's just like a fact of doing business, right? I spoke to a head of, there's a, a pre-IPO company, HR company here in New York City, and I was talking to the head of security there. And his, like, he started the meeting with, I have to assume I'm going to be breached. Like his default posture is, I'm going to be breached, and now what are all of the things that I need to do in order to prevent the breach? And now let's assume there's a breach. What's everything that I need to have in place in order to detect it, alarm on it, triage it, right, and act, right? So so he's sitting there from both a, a proactive security standpoint and a reactive security standpoint. And that posture is incredibly freeing because this guy is sitting there and saying, I have no ego about my decisions, mm-hmm. Right. I just want to do what's right for the company. And it's it's amazing. I remember sitting down with him, and he was so open and honest when he was talking about his stack. And I had this baffled look on my face. And it's it's rare that people throw me for a loop. And he yeah. was like, what's this look on your face? I said, dude, I got to tell you, like, you're being so nice to me. And I'm a vendor. And he he was like, my job is to talk to people who have interesting technology because all I care about is trading up and doing better. And that statement, can I name this person? Is that okay? Yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, okay. Anyways, Daniel Leslie at Namely. He's amazing. That posture and that that positioning is so rare, right? And I don't I don't know why, but it just is. Like people either don't want to admit that they have a problem, don't know that they have a problem. I've spoken with tons of heads of securities who can talk a really good game, but they're so far removed from the facts on the mm. ground that they'll say, oh, I have logs for that. Or mm. they'll say, oh, I've got some privileged access management provider. No, you don't. You have no idea what you're talking about. Mm. When was the last time they touched a command line? 25 years ago? And it's a shame. And I think in the security space, like look at the average tenure of a CISO. Yeah. It's what... A year and a half, not very, not, long. Not very yeah. long. And so from a continuity standpoint, it's hard. So the interesting thing about that perspective, right? Like that, hey, I want to do everything that I can to prevent it, but I assume that like we're going to be. Like that person had the right takeaway from it. Like what can I do to constantly get better? I see a different response that people have to those that same perspective, which is like, well, then what's the point? Right. People are like, if we all say, like, assume, you know, it's not if you get hacked, it's when, or like you've already been hacked, whatever else it is, 
then people are just like, well, then I'll just give up. Like, what's the point of being secure? Because we're already hacked anyway, right? Like, people will be like, your data's everywhere anyway. Like, like who cares, right? There's this dangerous thing where I'm like, you know, and, and I always, I, I kind of point out, I'm like, look, when people say there's no such thing as like, you know, a company that hasn't been hacked or a perfectly secure company, and I'm like, well, I disagree, right? And I'll say I disagree because like, maybe that's true five or 10 years ago, but like now I can kind of prove that there are some companies that haven't been hacked. And like, turns out they're crypto companies, right? <laughs> and the reason I know they haven't been hacked, like, you know, the ones that have been, right? Because your Bitcoin is gone because someone took your digitally unique asset and moved it somewhere else. So, like, you know, all those ones that got hacked. So, any, any like cryptocurrency where you can check with your private key and validate that, like, your balance is still there, they haven't been hacked yet. Doesn't mean that like they aren't going to be hacked in a minute, but like they haven't been hacked yet. You haven't lost your cryptographically unique thing. Mm-hmm. And so to me, the idea of like you can't do security well enough that it matters is like the most asinine perspective in the world. Have you I mean, do you run into that at all? Like, is that something you see? I have not encountered that. Really? What I've right. encountered is arrogance and ego. Okay. What I'm doing is good enough. I've already built this in-house. You're too expensive. I don't need to pay this. Mm. Never. Uh, well, how about on the consumer side? You've seen like people be like, "Oh, well, my I assume my data is just everywhere anyway." So they'll just like give away their data constantly. That's not like a perspective you've ever seen. I haven't seen that perspective, and I think that's because most people aren't educated, right? Mm. My stepsister shops all the time. I'm sure she's signed up for eight thousand newsletters and enters this and that. And yeah. she's just simply not educated on, Got on all any like of the this. Browser stuff. plugins that just like monitor every website you're on and tell you what discounts you can get. You want to hear a story? I'll of tell course. you a story. I'm gonna tell you a story. I like stories. My stepmother will never listen to this, so I'm gonna tell a story. Uh, of course she okay. won't. Yeah. <laughs> My mother won't even listen to this. Yeah, right. I'll even send her this. She'll be like, good job. Yeah. So I I have internet, but I don't have cable television. And as you know, sometimes when you go home, cable is the most amazing thing. You can just sit there and watch FX for like 12 hours straight, and it's wonderful. And I don't have Netflix, I don't have, so I like, you know, borrow passwords from people. And sometimes I just want to watch like four, 8,000 times on FX on the weekends. I just, I, or, or like I want to watch reruns of Law and Order or something. So I go home to my stepmother, my stepmother's house in Nashua, and they have Comcast. And I'm like, hey, can I borrow the password to Comcast? And her husband, Les, is like, no. And I was like, come on, Les. And he's like, absolutely not. And I'm like, fine. Les goes out to play his poker game. I go downstairs to his unsecured laptop. I open up the browser. I go into the cookies, which are being stored in the browser itself, which is synced across all of his devices. And I grab his username and password out from his Comcast login. And I am now happily watching cable television with Les's account. Naturally. Naturally. And so... Basic 101 security, use a password manager. Oh, of course. Right. And so that, so like the uneducatedness about, about security and just the most basic things you can do to sort of shore up your own personal information. Now, I'm an insider thread. That was not fair. Mm-hmm. I had an unfair advantage. But yeah, I mean, th- that's your typical layman, right? Yeah, I just. I uh, swear I'm not a bad person. No, yeah, you are. It's fine. <laughs> um, I'm glad that you haven't seen people just give up on security. Maybe they won't, they don't tell you, but I think many people actually have. There's a, that's like a thing in the world. People have given up on privacy. They've given up on security, and it's just part of the 
part of the what, what we're fighting in order to help create a more secure world. So let's move on to some things that you know we think that you know if you're out there and you're building a software company and you're going to be selling to enterprises and you're going to be processing data, like what should you be doing to be more secure, right? I mean, there's obvious like security hygiene, like password managers, all those kind of standard things that we should be doing from a corporate perspective. But what are the things that you think about from like demonstrating it? Like I, I think you guys open source a bunch of stuff around SOC 2 compliance. Like what's SOC 2 all about? Like who should be thinking about it? And what's the process like? Yep. So SOC 2 is a very popular compliance certification that is popular with with enterprise B2B startups specifically who are trying to win business like upmarket. At least that's where I see it. Mm-hmm. And I would say its popularity has surged in the past two years. The European version is ISO 27001, which is more rigorous. It goes much more deep on the corporate level. But SOC 2 is super popular in the States. And so it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to do. There's SOC 2 type 1 and then SOC 2 type 2. And I will I will note that SOC 2 is different than SOX compliance, mm-hmm. which is a requirement for going Sarbane public. Sarbanes-Oxley. Sarbanes-Oxley, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, so type, SOC 2 type 1 is you saying I've got a, a whole bunch of policies and a whole bunch of rules that I've put in place in my organization, and, and here they are. And then type 2 is an auditor coming back at some point in the future, how quickly they come back depends upon your tolerance for pain, mm-hmm. and then verifying that those policies have indeed stood the test of time. And so the threshold for strong internally, like we went as far as we could for as long as we could and said, you know, we're very secure, we, we uphold all these principles. And the threshold for us was losing business. Okay. So somebody in the Fortune 500 said, that's great, child, but go get the certification. Sure. And so we said, okay. Um, and so that was the trigger. And we did our type one about a year ago. Our type two actually starts in two weeks. Oh, wow. Yep. And as we were going through it, my CTO, Justin, was like, I'm never doing this again by hand. This is horrible. And so Justin, as a, as a developer, said, I'm going to code it. I'm going to code as much of this as possible. I'm not manually tracking an Excel sheet who has delivered what evidence I want ticketing integration with Jira. Mm-hmm. I am not going to manually edit PDFs. I'm going to edit Markdown, right? And I'm going to have a pipeline to PDF mm-hmm. so that I can make one change and instantly propagate across all of my all of my stuff. So he built this tool. And at the same time, uh, Strong started seeing an uptick in people who were calling us to help them speed through the SOC 2 process, like f- from an access control and evidence collection perspective. And so we decided to open source it. We're like, let's help all these startups out because it's it's freaking painful. And so we put that out, and there's like coursework to edu- bring people up to speed and educate them. It's good stuff. So the interesting thing about a lot of these certifications, right? You kind of mentioned it. It's this somewhat point in time kind of snapshot of your security posture and what you're doing. So what are the attestations you were making in your type one? Like, what are the, some of the categories? It's things like if there's file system encryption on laptops, whether you need to be on a VPN in order to gain access to things, basic onboarding policies and procedures. It touches things as simple as org charts and goes all the way down to the exact vendors that you rely on in order to deliver your product. And you can make SOC 2 as a company. You as you can make the decision to make it as robust or not because it's your call what you want to attest to. We chose to go all the way with it mm-hmm. because we are a security company 
right? And I knew that as part of the process for people looking at us, we have to fill out these very long security RFIs. People want to look at this report. They want to look at our pen test. They want to read the policies themselves. And so to us, it didn't make sense to invest the time unless we were going to do it right. And this is because as a hosted service, strong DM is like, I mean, you're a proxy into these databases, right? It's a yeah. pretty important position to be out there in. We are the middleware that is your your access between your humans, yeah, and your infrastructure. And so even though everything's encrypted and secure, it's like, I mean, there's there's data that's like being transmitted back and forth that's going through your servers. No, no customer's data is going through. through our servers. Yeah, we can... Just authentication. Authentication and authorization. You can log with us. We've put as much of the product on-premise as possible to, okay. to reduce as much of the threat service area on us and to make customers feel more secure and, quite frankly, be more secure. There's no reason why we need to see anybody's data. So you deploy like an agent or something into the into their environment, into their VPC or whatever they're going to do, and that's where most of the like the actual logic happens and then access to, like, you, you, you basically are controlling that from your, your hosted control plane. That's exactly right. Great, yep. okay. And then part of that process, you saw some demand for this SOC 2 Type 2 from customers and said, like, look, you just need to have it. It's funny, like, the certifications I, I find really interesting because people will be like, oh, are you, are you HIPAA compliant? It's like, well, that's, there's like, there's not like a process for HIPAA compliance. You sort of like self-certify as HIPAA compliant. Or they're like, are you PCI compliant? We're like, we don't really actually have any payment data. So like, nor do we ever see anyone's payment data. So like, doesn't make sense. Yep. And and even for like SOC 2 stuff, like we actually don't have any data really because it's like it, everything lives on prem for us. That's mm. that's like our whole thing. But people still look for these certifications as signals, right? And so you get people asking, have you have ever asked you about PCI? Is it like a thing that somebody asked you for? Not PCI, but HIPAA. Okay. And the answer is I'll sign a BAA, but like, yeah. but there's no, yeah. So I've had people just like mention or you know, say something like, oh, they wanted us to be PCI compliant. I'm like, well, do you actually <laughs> handle payment card information? Because that's when you would actually want that, right? Like, that's the thing. But I think that there's signaling you get. So going back to your question about, or the thing you said a little bit ago about security and people not caring, let's mm-hmm. say. So I think two things as with respect to compliance, and this could be ISO or SOC 2 or HIPAA or, or PCI. Mm-hmm. Number one, for startups today who want to move into the large enterprise, it's table stakes. Sure. Like You simply just need that seal of approval. On the flip side, if I'm at the large enterprise, you have to ask the question, are they simply just asking the question? Do you have the gold medallion on your website? Is that enough? And I would argue I get less scrutiny now because I am able to say, here's my 40-page yeah, SOC sure. 2 report. And so it's possible that people have almost they're, almost, they're trusting that if you have that certification, if the auditors have come in, that that's enough, that they actually don't need to look at it themselves. And so maybe that's where a lot of companies are also falling down today. Yeah, I mean, I have a problem with a lot of these certifications because I feel like they are sort of just this like, you know, point in time. It's like every vendor security assessment questionnaire. I'm sure that like Nomi filled out a bunch of vendor security assessment questionnaires that attested to the quality of their data security, right? 
and like turns out that policy wasn't implemented. It wasn't true. And so you make these assertions, but there's very little validation that those assertions are actually true. Or are true on an ongoing basis. Or on an ongoing basis, Correct. right? It's like, I always say that when people fill out those forms, it's like rose-colored glasses, like, well, yeah, like we have some data that we encrypt at rest, right? Doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it all is, right? Or like, so I just find our preference is just to limit the amount of data that you actually get control over. And like, that's why like we ship stuff on-prem and that's why you ship some stuff there. Because it's like, then if you never see it, you can't store it. You can't. No one on your team can access it, right? Yep. But I feel like the world hasn't yet realized that, right? There's a lot of people that still just like want to put the look for the logos, like look for the stamps on your website to make sure you have it. They're willing to trust you then. Yeah, I, but I mean that's also the gift of <laughs> it's also the gift of enterprise software with sales, right? And especially as you are around for longer, because. Four years ago, when somebody asked who your biggest customer was, you like babbled something incoherent. And now you say very pithily, I have 40% of the Fortune 100, was it you said yeah. to me earlier today? And like, that's baller. And people are like, oh, yeah, end of my questions to sure. Grant. Yeah, right. I mean, so, I mean, that's signaling as well, though, right? Like, it's all signaling. And so it's interesting the value of signaling. And this is like also like just kind of a comment generally that like, like the idea, maybe someone out there is doing some better continuous security attestation where you know they can validate that you actually do have all of your laptops encrypted, and you know everyone has all the you know one password being used everywhere, and one password has a different password for every site you use, and you have second factor for everything. I mean, there's like <laughs> so many of these things that you should be doing that are better if you're doing it that way, but it's very hard to prove that on a continuous basis, right? And if your company starts, so so we were lucky, honestly, like I'll call it, we were lucky that our line in the sand was somebody said they wouldn't do business with us because it forced us to do SOC 2 when we were like five people or something mm-hmm. crazy small like that. One of our customers, actually Troops, did it, I think, when they were sub-10. And so if you do it really, really, really early on, then it's just a, it's part of the culture. It's part of the fabric, and it's just how you do things. As opposed to having your retrofit when you're 200 or 300 or 1,000 people, I, oh my God, I can't even imagine how many, how much manpower or woman power you would need on that problem in order to get that integrated. Yeah, I mean, you have to take security seriously from day one, right? And I think you, we do, you do, but we're also like infrastructure security nerds and we're not building like <laughs> ad tech anymore, right? Or marketing tech anymore. That's and, true. And that's why they get to pay us money and work with us so that we can help them be more successful and more secure. But Is that why they pay us money? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Tell me, like, what else do you recommend for a founder or a you know, product manager or VP of engineering out there who you know, maybe they're not in infrastructure, maybe they're not in enterprise software as we know it today. They're, they do something in a MarTech company or an tech company. What do you think they can do to help their organization get more secure and be more security-minded? I'm a big fan of asking questions. So like, let's say you're managing, I don't know, like the the analysts who present... So let's take AdTech, right? So let's say I work for a remarketing company. Pretend I work at Datomi, yeah, right? Great. So So I'm back in analytics. I'm directing my analytics team. And so they have access to a SQL Server database. And they also have access to Greenplum. As a manager, I should be asking questions. 
what are you doing with this information? What kind of access do you have? Let me see the queries you're running. Just basic, like, facts on the ground, get your hands dirty, what is my team doing? And that's where everything starts. Because then once you have the information, you can sit there and say, okay, you know what, like, Sally doesn't really need access to customer DB. She only needs access to revenue DB. And you can start making the decision for your team. You essentially have your own little set of internal security mm-hmm. practices. And then maybe you go to the management meeting, you're like, hey, guys, guess what I found? My team touches the most sensitive data. We touch CRM data. We grew up, right? We became this $100 million company overnight. I think it's time to revisit some stuff, and I've already revisited it on behalf of my team. Yeah, I love that idea of like asking questions and sort of I think you can do that just asking the other teams like hey what like what do we do for this? Like how do we train our team to be more secure from a password perspective, from a access perspective, from a confidentiality perspective. There's so many areas here where they like I think it's it's training is a huge part of it. And even like I don't know about you, but something that terrifies me as as somebody who's in charge of the PNL, is how much money am I spending on just software in general, like SaaS brawl, like mm-hmm. the crazy SaaS brawl of where course. licenses just start to build up. And so we have a review. I have a review with every single one of the, the team leaders, and we go through the, the SaaS brawl of team members, and we cut off access where it's not needed anymore. Just like basic administration stuff, that's something that can be added to it, right? Tell me who's got access to, to what in Google Docs right now. Yeah, you know, you know one. So one funny thing I, I'll ask people about, like, how do they monitor their SaaS sprawl and all these kind of things. So I'm like, oh yeah, well, our CFO, we look over it. Like, what are we spending and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, that's you know, that's how we take control and make sure that we're not sending data out everywhere else. And my questions, I'm always like, what do you do about the free tools? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, yeah, you know, like a browser plugin that's free, like or something else that's freemium, like you know, no one's paying for it yet, but like. It's connected to your G Suite or your Salesforce instance. Like, what do you do to monitor those? And they're like, "Yeah, we should." And I'm like, yeah. "Yeah, it's like it's interesting. Like that that billing kind of concept is. I mean, realistically, I would say that. What do they say? Like, if it's free, you're the product, right? Like, I think that's very true in the enterprise space as well. It's not just a consumer thing, right? It's not just Facebook that's making money off of you as an individual user. You know, it's all these other organizations that are providing these free tools and getting access to corporate data that can then monetize that as well, right? I think I'm probably hyper aware, you know, but like I've talked about this in the podcast in the past, right? I'm always concerned about the third party app store apps that get added to everything, right? Oh, you added that something into Slack mm-hmm. and it knows it can like monitor all the conversations. Like I just think this is likely very pervasive. In many companies. Do you know what's crazy? Slack is literally a repository for how many privileged conversations across how many companies? I mean, right, exactly. Right. So many. Everyone. So many. You know what I used to think in ad tech? It actually didn't occur to me until after I left. So if you're integrated on the conversion pages, right, of your customers' websites or even the site visit pages, and you've been working with that customer for even a year, or you know what, it doesn't even matter even a year, you can just look at their earnings statements from the prior year, you know in real time how that retailer is indexing against last year, and you can probably predict whether or not they're going to have an up or down quarter. Yeah. Like, that's privileged information, and that's just from pixel calls. Super privileged information. I was mentioning that I had a friend that uh, 
worked at one of these big MarTech companies and they would get all the sales data from these you know, other publicly traded companies in a week before mm-hmm. they would actually release the earnings, right? The challenge there is like if anyone that gets access or you're at the MarTech company or the ad tech company that has that information, if you index that and then you mention it in the conversation and someone makes a stock transaction based on, on your information, like that's securities fraud like throughout the whole thing. But no one, like, I never got securities fraud training when I worked for, <laughs> like, I knew that I couldn't trade the publicly traded, like, the company that I worked for. But, like, the fact that our customers had data that I could see was never something that, like, we talked about. It was never something that, like, I had to file a, like, file a, you know, report that I wanted to buy these stock, like, these shares beforehand. I also found out recently. I was digging into a little bit more because I think this is like a I think this is likely a pervasive problem. Like when you look at how stocks perform, there's always this whisper, right? The whisper is like the earnings that people the, the street sort of expects, and generally it's fairly right. And it kind of tells you what direction like a stock will trade at, when the earnings are released. Mm-hmm. And you can see like weeks beforehand that before a company announces their earnings, like it starts trending in either direction, and that's because people have access to information, right? And so the thing that I think is true is that, like that information asymmetry is like screwing over like small investors who don't have that information. Like that ends up being like hedge funds and other people who get access to this data, trade on it massively and then like screw over the like mom and pop main street person, right? And so, you know, I would I'd love to see more enforcement of like how people actually trained around that, like how they handle that data, the process by which the SEC actually investigates insider trading is like the most archaic system in the world. They basically give a list of people that made money but like on, on like suspicious trades. They'll give that to the CFO of a publicly traded company and they'll be like, do you know any of these people? And they'll be like, I don't think so. Like, or can you like find out if your employees know any people? And like, they'll maybe track down. Like, oh yeah, that's like, that's our. But it's like manual. It's like you ask them these questions. It's like there's got to be a social graph out there that can figure this all out. Like, we should know all the employees that work at all your vendors. We should know all this like that surface area that of all your data, and we should be able to just like look at that and be like, yo, you traded on information that like wasn't publicly available. Dude, anyway, you have your next company. I'm a maniac. A vendor dependency company. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, any any other like kind of last advice you think that's you want to kind of get out there for folks who are building enterprise software? You know, it could be thinking about security, it could be thinking about go to market, whatever you think is really top of mind for you right now. What's always top of mind is not having an ego. Skylar and I have been talking about marketing initiatives recently, and and there's always debate, right? Who everybody wants to touch marketing, and I said to him, I was like, I don't care. If you tell me we need to buy banners at SFO or billboards down 101 or I need to stand on the corner at like 28th and Broadway with a placard on me that says like strong DM and hand out free flyers, like I don't care. We have a great product that people love and we're going to build this into a successful company, right? Whatever it is. Sure. Um, so it doesn't matter at the end of the day, right? It, it just doesn't matter provided you're putting something out there that people love. Who cares what it takes to get there? You're not doing anything illegal. You're not going to do insider trading. You're not breaching data or whatever. But it doesn't matter at the end of the day. And I think that as founders, everybody has very strong opinions. And if a founding team is a good team, probably 
everybody is approaching problems from a different perspective. And it's the unity of those opinions that makes the founding team something bigger than the two of you or the three of you, right, into something magical. And you have to remember at the end of the day, you're just here to solve problems because everybody wants the same outcome. That's something that's always top of mind for me. I love that. And yeah. t- I mean, touch in more on the, on like no ego. Like how else do you think that comes through in your style or in you know, people you admire? I'll tell you a story. Great. So last Thursday night, I was on a date. This is the fifth date. We are not seeing each other anymore. <laughs> now, I, th- I actually think this date is the one that <laughs> threw him. Yeah. No, no, no. And he, kudos to him, he didn't ghost. He texted me and said he wasn't, he wasn't interested. But no, so we go on this date, and he goes, he goes, have you ever been bouldering? You ever been a Brooklyn boulder? So I said, no, I'd love, I'd love to go. And I, I lift, and I'm, I'm strong, and I'm in shape. I was like, teach me. And so I show up at Brooklyn Boulders, and he's been climbing for a year and a half or two years, and he's, he's good. And he was like, okay, he's like, so climb. And I'm like, teach me. Like, what do I do? Where are my hands placing? Like, start from the beginning. How do I put my foot down? And I'm, I'm just badgering him with questions mm-hmm. for like a half hour, 45 minutes. And he goes, do you really want to know the answer to these questions? And I was like, dude, how else am I going to get to 15, 20 feet up if you're not going to help me? And he's like, well, I guess I just figured it out myself. And I was like, Okay, but like I want to learn the right way and I'm going to learn much more quickly mm. if you actually tell me how to do it as opposed to me figuring it out for myself. And he was incredulous. Just tell me, show, show me the path. If you mm-hmm. tell me to do A, B, and C, I'm going to do A, B, and C because I'm going to get there. I'm going to have opinions on whether A, B, and C feel right. My hands don't grip that thing enough. Can I try it this way instead? But he was incredulous. And I think team members can also sometimes be incredulous as well because and particularly at an early stage when you're so wrapped up in things, right? In the usability and the feel, and there are so few people touching something, but like so few people is everybody touching it. It's hard to see the forest for the trees. The thing that I took from that is instead of saying like, oh, I'll just go figure it out myself, like you're like, no, but if someone has some of the answers, I'd rather just like get the answers from them and then like go try to implement that. And so if I can listen for 30 minutes while like, I try to get some of the fundamentals down and go in with some working knowledge. Then instead of me like failing and trying a bunch, like I'm going to get up there in two tries instead of 30. It's totally right. So if I'm going to go and build out an SDR team, mm-hmm. I am not going to go and try to figure out what an SDR is, like how to train them, blah, blah, blah. There are people who are far brighter than me who have done this for 20, 30 years, right? It's the reason why you go and hire a sales leader or or a head of product or a head of customer success or whatever it is because this is what these people do for a living and you don't need to reinvent the wheel, right? You listen to them, you're going to get there faster, you're going to have a bit of an opinion, but like these are the experts. I feel like you're talking specifically to me as the person who literally tries to figure everything out before. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, that's like, I'm like huh, I, could, I should do that. <laughs> that sounds like a nice way to, of doing things. Um, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. This is this is good. I sound like I actually know what I'm talking yeah. talking about. You're like I'm like, wow, you you've been watching me recently. Yeah. What's up, Grant? Where's that head of sales? <laughs> exactly. Uh, Liz, thank you so much. It was a pleasure having you. My pleasure, Grant. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 
This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.